So good morning again. If you missed me introducing myself a little bit ago, my name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you, and uh, we are going to get into God's Word here together in just a moment. So hope you have your Bible ready to go. I am too often judgmental. I am too often judgmental. What about you? We don't like to think of ourselves as judgmental. This is one of those passages, I think, where we could read it and go, yeah, huh, that's not me. No problem. We don't like to think of ourselves as judgmental. We certainly don't like to think that we go around condemning others. But after we are confronted by the word of God this morning, I think you will be shocked to discover how often your thoughts, your attitudes, your words, your actions tell a different story. How can I say that? And how can I say that with you, using the phrasing you? How can I say that? Because that's my experience of this scripture, of the scriptures we're going to study this morning. Uh, That's my experience of this scripture, being confronted by God's word, and and maybe at first thinking, nah, I'm I'm good, I, I I don't judge, I don't condemn others, but then as the word of God soaks into our hearts and minds, and as we go about our day to day life, if you're anything like me in the coming days, you'll be shocked to discover how your thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions say differently. So open your Bibles with that enthusiastic beginning. (laughs) Grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is uh, a part of Jesus' teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we have been working our way for the last few months. We've been working our way passage by passage through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've entitled this series, Kingdom life. So I want you to pull out your Bible. We love you to bring your Bibles with you. If at all possible, open God's word, put your finger in God's word, and hear from God by keeping your finger in the text. Or if you need to, you can pull out a device. All I was mentioned recently that that's my second choice, and it's a distant second. If you got a digital device for the Bible app, okay, that's okay too. <laughs> so judgmental. <laughs> yeah. So judgmental is right. Or as the sermon goes along, we can, dis- we can decide whether that's discerning of other shortcomings. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just going to have... Okay, never mind. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and, uh, and we'll get there in just a moment. Here's where I want to start before we read the text. This is our God, King Jesus. This is our God, we sang, King Jesus. Jesus is King. We're in a series of messages we've called Kingdom Life because we need to recognize every day, all the time, that Jesus is King, that his kingdom has come. When Jesus was here, he said, the kingdom is upon us. His kingdom is unfolding. Yes, it hasn't come to perfect fruition. It will be fully realized. His kingdom will be fully established, fully realized in the future when he returns. But he said his kingdom is upon us. 
His kingdom is unfolding, and so Jesus reigns. And so as we submit, as followers of Jesus, as we submit to him, he calls us to live out the ways of Jesus. He calls us, our lives, to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, that we live for him. And so we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves now in chapter 7 of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We, we find ourselves, hopefully, together asking, what does it look like to live a kingdom life? If Jesus is king of my life and I am submitted to him and he is transforming me from the inside out and I am called to live like him, what does that look like? What kinds of transformations are going to take place? What kind of differences are we going to see in my heart and my mind and my attitude and my words and my actions? Let's be asking God that together. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Judge not, or some of your translations say what? Do not judge that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, very quickly, we just want to say what this does not mean. What this does not mean is that we must be all accepting of everything around us and everything goes and we don't need to be discerning and we'll just let things slide. It doesn't mean that we don't judge in the sense that we don't recognize or look around or ask God for wisdom between what is truth and what is error. Uh, what, what this does not mean is that there's never an occasion for being discerning this passage, by saying judge not, do not judge, it's not saying that there's never opportunities in life to be discerning, to be thoughtfully and appropriately critical about what we are seeing or hearing or what we are knowing about our own hearts. What, is this, what does this passage mean then? This use of judge, do not judge, in this case it is talking about we must not condemn other people. And by condemning other people, I am saying we must not pronounce people guilty before God. I am declaring you guilty. I am pronouncing you wrong. I have made a judgment in my mind and I have determined right and wrong. And now I am condemning you with it. Church family, do not judge, Jesus says. As we declare ourselves right and others wrong, and somewhere underneath there, hopeful to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or ourselves feel more important than others. But I didn't even read much of our passage this morning. We stopped after the first couple of phrases, do not judge. And what did I say? I said, if we're not careful, our reaction could be, nope, I don't judge. I don't condemn other people. I don't declare people guilty before God. But if we let God's word sit there a little bit, this isn't Derek getting mad. This is the word of God confronting us with the phrase, do not judge. Is it all too common? How often do we operate on assumption? Think about your interactions during the week with family, with friends, with coworkers, with fellow students. When there's a misunderstanding, when there's a conflict small or large, how often do we opt first? Our mind starts spinning on assumptions of what we assume their words or actions mean or what we assume their words or actions are motivated by. 
And then our assumptions cause us to make judgments about them, about whether they're right or wrong, about whether their motives are good or bad, about whether they're out to get me or not. See how quickly our assumptions move us to judgments? And usually our judgments are uncharitable, not charitable, not thinking the best, not giving the benefit of the doubt. And why? It's because our default, our human nature, our sinful human nature default is to protect myself, to keep my own um, reputation uh, unblemished, to be, so we come across as defensive. Think about, I hope that the Spirit of God will bring to mind some examples for you even this morning as we study, and if he doesn't, I think as you soak in this passage in the coming days, you will see how frequently we do this. I do this. You do this. And so um, we, make, we make our stuff to be minor. We, we might start to have some conviction. We might start to recognize where we fall short. We might have some slight awareness of our sin. And then we shove that down. And we think, well, that's just a little thing, and it's only in my head, so it's not that big of a deal. But you, person who hurt me, person out there, um, I, I don't know about you, but I think in percentages when I'm in a conflict. You know what I mean? What I mean is this. Well, okay, there's a misunderstanding. I'm having this kind of a situation with someone around me, but I mean, it might be 10% my fault. But if I'm saying that, what am I saying? That it's 90%? And, and then what I'm, that's making a judgment. That's not taking responsibility for myself. That's shoving down my part. So here's what we, when, when the passage starts with do not judge, the, especially what we are being cautioned against is, is taking God's role upon ourselves, putting ourselves in God's place and pronouncing other people guilty. Making ourselves, if we make ourselves to be the standard, if I'm the standard and my ways are right, my preferences are the standard, and you don't live up to them, then I have put myself in the place of God. And who made me the judge? James chapter 4 says, There is only one, this verse is on the screen, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, the God of the universe. But who are you to judge your neighbor, church family? God is the only just judge. And I don't think he needs my help. So why must we avoid judgmentalism? Let's go to verse 2, and the, the passage gets pretty serious about why we need to avoid judgmentalism, why we need God's grace to move away from being condemning toward others. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's the difficult reality that we must face when, you, when you, we appear in the future before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged by God the way we have judged others. Pastor and author Kent Hughes writes this, that judgmental believers in Jesus will still get to be with God forever. So there's an important distinction 
about our salvation and the security of our salvation, if you are submitted to Christ, if you have been saved because you have given your life to Jesus, judgmental believers will still go to be with God forever, but they will have very little reward for their hypercritical spirit will have vitiated. That's a word I had to look up. I didn't even know what it meant. For their, they will have very little reward for their hypercritical spirit will have vitiated. It means like spoiled much of the good they have done. And then, and then Hughes goes on to say this, there is nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit. Think attitude, right? Think motivation. Think where our words and our judgment and our condemnation come from. And Hughes says, there is nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit. What's underneath our judgment? What's underneath our condemning? What's underneath making others wrong so we can be right and we can feel better than them? Verse 3. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Okay, now, many of you have heard this before, this passage before, or heard this language before, so I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to ask us to do our best to ask God to give us new ears and let the words of, let the word of God speak to us here. Give us a picture. Imagine it, okay? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Who is speaking? It's not a trick question. It's a church question. <laughs> Who is speaking? <laughs> it was like, I get, you know, hey, just, just give you the easy opportunity to talk, right? I could ask you more difficult questions if you want. <laughs> Who is speaking? Jesus. And and what did Jesus do in his earthly life, in his earthly vocation, besides being God in the flesh? He was a carpenter. He was some kind of craftsman. He was very hands-on with materials. So here's Jesus speaking to us and probably speaking out of experience, working with wood. And, and look what the picture he paints. And oh, wait a second. Before we analyze the picture he paints, let's just acknowledge this is hyperbole which means it's exaggeration, which means Jesus doesn't exactly mean you to take it literally. He's using exaggerated language to make a point. So instead of cruising it over, because we've heard it a few times in the scriptures, let's let the picture, you know, let's let him paint the picture here. Imagine it. A log. The word there that's translated into English as log is, is, is in, he's indicating what? A huge piece of wood. We're talking lumber. We're talking... Uh, you know, go down to the hardware store lumber yard. We're talking big planks of lumber, okay? And then when he says speck, we're talking sawdust, almost invisible, little piece of something. And so what's the contrast all about? The contrast, 
that he's, the picture that he's painting, the contrast he wants to make, is that the magnitude of the accuser's problem, the, one, the issue that the accuser has, the one with the log, that issue is much bigger, there's much more magnitude to his issue than the insignificant issue in the person he is accusing. The idea is that he is so blinded by this huge piece of lumber sticking out of his eye that it should be laughable to think that he could see the sawdust clearly. Are you with me? If he's got a ginormous log, think log truck driving down the road, just cut down the trees in the forest driving down the road. If you've got a plank, if you've got a log, if you've got a tree sticking out of your eye, it should be hilarious to think we can see clearly to point out the speck in someone else's eye. So as I was studying this week, um, multiple, at least two of the commentators of the books I was reading to study, at least two of the commentators um, brought this up, that if we had to, you know, uh, make a, uh, if we had to use a biblical example of someone who's got a log in their eye and shouldn't have any business trying to point out the speck, both commentators brought up King David in 2 Samuel 12. So let me just read from one of the commentaries. This is D.A. Carson. He says, The most obvious example in the Bible, I suppose, is found in 2 Samuel 12. King David steals another man's wife. Listen to this. Listen to the situation King David was in. Despite his own large harem, he lusts after this particular woman, seduces her, and later discovers that she has become pregnant by him. Her husband is absent at the military front. Oh, by the way, fighting the battles that, the, that King David sent him to fight. Her husband is absent at the military front, and so David arranges to have the husband killed. The king is now guilty of both adultery and murder. And then along comes the prophet Nathan, who enters the royal court, and instead of confronting the king directly, he tells a parable. He tells a story to see how King David will respond to this story. So the prophet Nathan enters David's court, and he tells a parable, a short story about a poor farmer whose one little lamb has been stolen by a rich, powerful neighbor who has his own large flock. What's David's reaction? David is incensed. Perhaps some of the force of his wrath is because of his own suppressed guilt. In, in see, seething in indignation and quite unconscious of any irony, David asks, well, who is this wicked farmer? And Nathan replies, you. It's you. Somehow, King David incredibly blind, had been unconscious of the plank in his own eye as he fumed over the speck of sawdust in the rich farmer's eye. And I think if you allow God's word to soak into your heart and mind, I think if you find yourself reflecting on this passage in the coming days, I think you probably will find or have a similar experience as me, 
that I need the correction of God's word in this passage way more frequently than I would like to admit. That I've got logs I need to deal with and take to the Lord and seek forgiveness for and and acknowledge of way more of that need then I have the ability to put myself in the place of God and condemn others. Verse five. You hypocrite. Our real problem, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, The real problem he's pointing out is the hypocritical nature of the situation. Um, We talk ourselves into thinking we are doing acts of righteousness. This is where the Sermon on the Mount has been. If you've been here for the series, we've talked about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, these things that we could do to look righteous, to look religious, to make ourselves appear to be doing godly things. And even pointing out specks in other people, we, we could play that off to be an act of righteousness. Well, I'm doing God's work. I'm trying to help them grow in Christ. Now, there is a time and a place for that. We'll talk about that some more. But where we want to make it an act of righteousness, thinking that we can somehow clearly see the sin in a fellow person, but really what's happening is we're masking our own, the mess in our own hearts. We're avoiding our own self-righteous judgmental attitudes. Now, here you are. Here you are at Faith Church this morning. And if you feel picked on, it's because uh, we are confronted by God's word. And I don't know about you, but teaching through the Sermon on the Mount has been hard. Just one topic after the other where I need an adjustment. So if you're here this morning and you feel picked on, I think that's God at work through his word by the Spirit. And he wants to transform you. He wants to make you new. He wants to work in your heart and mind. So verse 5 says, you hypocrite. First. Everybody say first. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then, everybody say then. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So just the wording there now, just the way the passage is worded, we can now acknowledge there are times, there must be times when it's appropriate and helpful to someone around us, a fellow believer, to help them identify a speck in their eye. Clearly there are times when we need to be discerning when we can speak the truth, when a church family can enact discipline, when you meet with with fellow believers and you hold each other accountable. There There must be appropriate times when we are to call out evil or to point out sin in order to help someone grow spiritually and grow in their relationship with Jesus. The danger... So see, like, we just want to stop there. We just want to go, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm helping them grow in Jesus. I, you know, I, yeah, 
I got to be discerning. I need to point out right and wrong. I know I'm, I'm helping them. Okay. Just, just please hear my heart and stay with me. Yes. There, are, there must be times. God's word says, then, then you can take out the speck. Yes, there must be times when we can help others. But the danger, the danger is when we see our responsibility to discern the speck in others, the danger comes when we, t- when we take that responsibility and it warps into hypercritical condemnation. When I, when I use the excuse that I'm helping them, but I allow my sinful nature to warp my words and actions into condemnation, into judgmentalism. And, and the difference, these two phrases on the screen, is an important difference to consider. What's our approach? What's our attitude? What's our motivation? Where are we coming from when we are considering pointing out the speck in someone else's eye? A hypercritical spirit is destructive. But a discerning spirit is constructive, right? It's it's, it's intended to be helpful, to build up, to be encouraging, to be helpful. So the passage says, first, everybody say first. 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 Where does our attention go so fast? It goes to their speck. So fast, that's all I see. So fast in my interactions. So fast when I have a misunderstanding. So fast, so fast when I'm in conflict. So fast I see the speck. Everybody say first. First, Take the log out of your own eye. I mean, here's the deal. Here's honestly my experience with this passage. It's annoying. Let this passage be annoying. I've had people, believers in my life, that that pointed this passage out to me, and they did it so frequently, and they kept coming back to it. It was annoying. Everybody say first. But that's because they wanted me to do the work first. You with me? They wanted me to do the log work first. Because we so quickly see the speck. So first, church family, find forgiveness. Do some self-reflection. Be willing to put your finger down or to turn your finger towards your own heart and go, what's going on in here that makes me act this way? What's going on in here that makes me react like that? What's going on in here first that I need to address first, that I need to confess to God first, that I need to find forgiveness for first, that I need to be healed of first? Remove the plank of self-righteousness. Remove the plank of, of judgmentalism. Remove the hypocritical behavior of trying to build yourself up by making someone else get knocked down. Then, everybody say then. Then, and I still want to insert, maybe, then maybe, in certain situations, God will give you the opportunity to clearly help another person get free of sin. Maybe. If done well. If led by God and not by your own desire to point out the speck. Right? 
Now, let's use the language, God's, I mean, Jesus in the sermon, who was speaking? What, what was he in his, what was his vocation? So he starts talking about logs and specks, right? And then, and then where, is our, where are these logs and specks? In the eye. Now, so let's, let's, let's dig in, not just read past it. What do we know about the eyes? What do we know about removing something from the eyes? Yeah. Anybody wear contacts? I wear contacts. Anybody remember the first time you tried to put on contacts? Your body doesn't like it. Your body fights back. Your eyelids close, you blink, you pull your head away. It's very difficult to overcome because your eyes are protecting themselves because they're sensitive. Okay, now what about this? Anybody ever had something in your eye? Did it end up being something pretty small? Really small. Your eyelash or smaller? How did it feel? Ginormous. What should be super minor was seriously irritating. And your eye is sensitive and it's responding and it's itching and it's crying and it's red. So if something needs to be removed from the eye, I should jab my finger in there. Is that how we do it? We wouldn't, wait, you wouldn't do that to yourself? I got something in my eye. You wouldn't do that to yourself, so guess what? If someone has a speck in their eye, they don't need you to jam your finger in there. With a loud voice and condemnating language. I just made that up. But you know what I mean. No judgment. Thank you. I make up words and I get away with it. Thank you. So if we don't do that, then, then if God gives us the opportunity, first we do the work then we might get the opportunity to help with someone's spec. If we do that, let's do it like we're working with somebody's eye. Gentle, coming from a humble place, empathetic of their circumstances and what they're going through and what they're doing, gracious, seeking the best for them, not trying to make myself better by making them wrong, but wanting the best. So then here quickly are some, some verses. The first couple are from the earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7 says, blessed are the merciful. So if we have the opportunity to point out a speck, let's be merciful. God has given us, shown us mercy. Why wouldn't we show mercy to others? And then, in the, and then in Matthew 6, 12, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he includes the phrase, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. True disciples of Jesus, having been forgiven, follower of Jesus, you have been forgiven. You have experienced God's forgiveness, taking you out of darkness and into the light, out of, out of doomed to life with him. You have received forgiveness. And now we have the opportunity to extend that to others. And then in 1 John 14, it says, we love because God first loved us. You have experienced God's love. God has poured his love out to you. He has demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were stuck in sin, Christ died for you. God loves you. 
And so we love, the next verse on the screen, we love because he first loved us. His love has been poured out to us through Christ. It fills us up. It ought to overflow out of our life in the way that we interact with people. God's love overflowing out of us to others. Living a kingdom life, here we are in our series called Kingdom Life. Living a kingdom life does not result in a pattern of condemning judgment. Jesus is king. He's alive and he reigns. You as his followers are submitted to him and you are increasingly being transformed. And to live a kingdom life does not result in a pattern of condemnation and judgmentalism. It results in lives, in hearts that are increasingly kind and merciful and forgiving and loving. So, so let's, so I'm, I'm going to pray here in a moment, but before I do, let's let God's word do its work in us. Let's allow God to confront us through his word, by his spirit, showing us in our hearts and minds where we tend toward judgmentalism, where we tend toward poking and jabbing at specks when we haven't first come before the Lord to address our logs. Could it be, church family, could it be that we spend too much time judging others? Could it be that that's where our minds go too easily and too often? Could it be that we spend too much time judging others, harshly condemning other Christians? Or, or another, another unfortunate hobby in some Christian circles, expecting non-Christians to act like Christians? Who made us judge? Is that what God has called us to? Is harsh condemnation of fellow Christians and judging non-Christians because they're not acting like Christians? Is it possible, church family, that we've spent too much time doing those things? And is it possible that we don't spend enough time being in close relationship with fellow believers I'm not talking about your entire church family. I'm talking about being in close relationship with a handful of others who know you and you know them. And we've been in a relationship of care and of mutual respect and of prayer for each other to the point where we have invited each other into the opportunity to gently and graciously and kindly point out specks. Do we spend enough time building those kinds of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ where we can deal with each other's sensitive eyes, but in a gracious, kind, merciful, caring, loving way? And is it possible that we spend even less time looking inward, 
opening ourselves to the Lord and to be cross-examined by his word, by the spirit? Do we spend even less time being open to seeing our own plank? And confessing our sin, seeking forgiveness, and asking God to remove the log so we can grow in Christ and so we can more clearly go where he has called us. Church family, Jesus is king. We're in a series of messages called Kingdom Life, and we're, in, we're, teach, we're listening to Jesus speaking. We're listening to Jesus' teaching in chapters 5, 6, and 7 because we need a daily reminder that Jesus is king. His kingdom is at hand. His kingdom is unfolding. We are, are to increasingly live as citizens of his kingdom, not citizens of the kingdom of one, of what works for me, of what I need. But Lord, help me to live as a citizen of the kingdom. Help me to increasingly submit myself to you, Lord Jesus, I want to live out the ways of Jesus. As you are changing me, as you are working in me, as you are giving me a new heart, a new mind, a new attitude, and new desires, and the words that are coming out are better than they used to be. God, as you are changing me from the inside out, I want to live out the ways of Jesus. I want to live a kingdom life. And in church family, the screen, the the, the What's on the screen is to remind you that you're not alone. That as, as, as we're called to a high standard in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus' words challenge us and confront us and call us to a, to a kingdom life, the spectacular news is you're not alone. You don't have to live that out on your own strength. You don't have to try hard and hope you match up. By the grace of God... Through the work of Jesus and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, kingdom citizens will and do live kingdom lives. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your goodness. And we are thankful for what we were reminded of today of, of your um, of of how you demonstrated your incredible love for us. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, God, that you have shown us your love through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you, God, for the amazing news of the gospel that in Jesus we can have new life, new life now and new life with you for eternity. God, I pray that uh, for me and and each believer in Jesus here, I pray that we would increasingly surrender our lives to King Jesus. And for anyone who doesn't yet know Jesus as King, as Master, as Savior, I pray, God, that we would recognize and come to the end of ourselves, that we can't save ourselves, that there's no way we match up, that I'm never going to be good enough on my own strength, that we need you. We call on you as King as master, as rescuer, as savior of our lives. Lord, would we increasingly submit to you as king of our lives, and as we do that, as we live for you, would you transform us by your grace, by your power, by your working in our lives. 
Would you help us, Father, to be citizens of your kingdom, living out your ways. And as we live out your ways, then God, help us to stay away from assumptions. Help us not to let our assumptions lead us to inappropriate judgments. Father, help us to see people around us as you see people. Help us to think and want the best for them. And because, God, your love is at work in us, because we have been saved by your love, because we benefit from your love, because our lives are marked by receiving your love, God, may our interactions with others not be marked by judgmentalism, but by love by love that is so beyond us, by love that is patient and kind, that does not envy or boast, that is not arrogant or rude. God, would you give us love for others around us that does not insist on its own way, that is not irritable or resentful. God, give us love for others that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Give us, Father, as you transform us with your love, give us love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, so that you get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.